This is episode 246 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Thanks to patron support, That Shakespeare Life is made available all over the world, completely free to listen, and all without any commercials. If you would like to help support our show, you can sign up to be a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Sam Bilton, food historian and author of Fool's Gold, A History of British Saffron. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Live with my friend Cassidy Cash. It was the holiday of the Epiphany and was celebrated by Protestants and Catholics. And it marked the arrival of the three kings or the three wise men that were said to have showed up when Jesus was born and brought him presents of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. This Thursday, January 5th, is Twelfth Night, the official end of the 12 days of Christmas. For Shakespeare's lifetime, celebrating the 12 days of Christmas was a huge occasion, and one which included merriment right up to the very last day. In Shakespeare's plays, we see many of the Twelfth Night customs come to play, including the complete upheaval of established social order, where we have boys dressed in mock religious professions, lots of alcoholic drinking alongside elaborate meals, as well as bouts of parody and general misrule against moral order. And of course, for Shakespeare, all of these moments of wild abandon are accompanied by song and dance. To help us understand what Twelfth Night was, why it was celebrated with such crazy antics, and how it was celebrated during Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest and author of a new book on Twelfth Night Customs, Rachel Onstead. Rachel Onstead is the author and illustrator of A Midsummer Night's Dream Illustrated Handbook and Encyclopedia and is currently working on a book called The Twelfth Night or What You Will Body Illustrated Handbook and Encyclopedia. She's the artistic director of the Rose City Shakespeare Company and producer of The Twelfth Night Podcast by Rose City Shakespeare Company. You can join her on Facebook at Shakespeare's World and Words. She has an MFA in theater and is a retired architect and set designer. Hello, Rachel. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have you here again. Hi there, Cassidy. It's a treat to be here. Where do we see Twelfth Night celebrated in Shakespeare's plays? Well, technically, Twelfth Night, also known as the Epiphany, isn't mentioned or celebrated in Shakespeare's plays, not even in Twelfth Night. But what we do know is that Shakespeare's play, or what you will, was used to celebrate Twelfth Night in 1602 in Queen Elizabeth's court. However, the themes in the play Twelfth Night, they also echo the themes of the holiday. And you know, when I was looking into, well, do we know for sure if Shakespeare titled this play Twelfth Night? We don't even know that. But for whatever reason, there was enough of association between the holiday and the play that it became known as Twelfth Night. 
So what was this holiday that was celebrated in real life for 16th and 17th century England? Was Would they have had a certain set of celebrations? Well, you know, you can imagine at the time, England was really, there were a whole lot of people from different places and different religious backgrounds living there. And so things would vary from place to place. But in general, it was the holiday of the Epiphany and was celebrated by Protestants and Catholics. And it marked the arrival of the three kings or the three wise men that were said to have showed up when Jesus was born and brought him presents of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this holiday, it became very linked to Carnival and a lot of other similar holidays throughout history where people give each other presents and kind of celebrate the winter and at the same time try to get through it (laughs) because it's a survival mechanism with joy and mirth. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because it was so cold and so dark and, you know, you couldn't really go outside And so it was good to have a bunch of holidays lined up during those dark nights of the year. Well, you know, you mentioned giving each other presents and and some other specific things there. So take us through what some of the specific customs were unique to England that would have been used to celebrate Twelfth Night. If If we're trying to observe Twelfth Night on our own, for example, what Shakespearean things could we do to mark this holiday that would be authentic to the period? Well, you could put on a mummer's play. You could make Twelfth Night Cake. And Twelfth Night Cake was a very dense fruit cake which contained a bean. And if you found the bean in your slice, then you were king or queen of the bean. And you got to order everyone around for the holiday for however long that lasted. Sometimes that was eight days. Sometimes that was one night. It varied from place to place. But you might also get other things in your cake. If you got a clove, you were a villain. If you got a twig, you were a fool. And if you got a rag, you were a flirt. There was also a drink called lamb's wool. And this is where the custom of, of, and I have no idea how to pronounce this, so I apologize. I don't know if it's wassailing or wassailing, but basically you walk around drinking this hot alcoholic cider singing at your neighbors until they yell at you to go away or throw money at you or candy or or whatever. And I've got a recipe here for lamb's wool and we can put it on the website if people want to find it. But basically it's one and a half liters of traditional ale, stout, cider, six small cooking apples, little nutmeg, a little ground ginger, and 150 grams of sugar. I'm sorry, I don't know what that relates to in cups. And you basically, you core the apples and bake them until they're soft and you let them cool. And you make this kind of applesauce, basically. And then you add the alcohol to it and you drink it. (laughs) Wow. I can see why it would be called lamb's wool because you've got, you know, the pieces of the, the apples in there. And for those trying to make it from the audio, 150 grams of sugar is about three fourths of a cup for those of us here in the, in the U S measuring with cups, but we, we can definitely put the recipe in the show notes for today's episode as well. Awesome. I found this poem 
written in 1648 by Robert Herrick about lamb's wool. Next crown a bowlful with gentle lamb's wool, add sugar, nutmeg, and ginger with store of ale too, and thus ye must do to make the wassail a swinger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how I like mine, to be a swinging drink, for sure. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. What year did you say that was written? That was 1648 by Robert Herrick. Robert Herrick. That's fantastic. H-E-R-R-I-C-K. Now, were these customs, was this only celebrated in England or was Twelfth Night more broadly celebrated across Europe as well? Oh, all across Europe. And it still it still is celebrated all over Europe. In Italy, they celebrate the holiday of Bafana, who is a strega or witch, flies on a broom and brings presents to children by coming down through the chimney. Sound familiar? (laughs) Indeed. I think I can think of some connections here. (laughs) (laughs) And she would give, you know, sweets to kids who had been good, but they also make this kind of sort of burnt, but it looks like charcoal, sugar, sweet. And each kid gets one of those too, because we all have our moments, right? I, I really like that part of the Italian holiday. Yeah, we're all a little good. We're all a little bad. Everybody gets treats. That's nice. Then you don't have to be that kid going to sleep at night worrying about the the stocking full of coal, right? You you Exactly. Everybody gets gets both. That's that's quite fair. So now you <laughs> mentioned in 1602 that the play Twelfth Night by Shakespeare was used to celebrate Twelfth Night, the holiday in Queen Elizabeth's court. I wonder if you could tell us more about that celebration. What would the royal court have done to celebrate Twelfth Night? They would have given presents to Queen Elizabeth and lots of them. (laughs) It would have been a huge uh, celebration of Her Majesty. And as she said, and as many people believed at the time, her divinity. And so because this was a holiday for theoretically bringing gifts to the Christ child in England, it was celebrated as bringing gifts to Elizabeth as sort of the representation of Christ in England. As Since she was head of the English church, even though she technically couldn't run it or something, anyway, it was a lot of complicated maneuvering she had to do. At you the start time. to understand much more about why she had issues with the Pope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, many people did. (laughs) She certainly wasn't alone in that. It's true. Uh, I'm writing this book about Twelfth Night. And so in the process of writing that book, I realized that Twelfth Night is at its heart a very Italian play, a very Venetian kind of a play. And let me tell you, you know, we think of the Italians as being more having a lot of allegiance to the Pope, let's say. And I was so ignorant. I had no idea. That was not the case at all throughout Italy's history. There was a lot of conflict back and forth. But back to Elizabeth. So obviously they would have put on a play because they had Shakespeare come in and and put on the play. Was his the only play or was there like a series of productions that would have gotten done? We don't know. You know, we don't know. Twelfth Night is a pretty long play and it's pretty complicated, but these people were party animals. So there may have been two plays. I think it more likely that with a play the length of Twelfth Night that they probably would have had some dancing and some music and, you know, some parlor games. 
some features. So big, big party, lots of presents for Elizabeth and plenty of wassailing to go around. Plenty of wassailing and uh, weddings were also very common during Twelfth Night. It was considered a a very lucky time to have a wedding and, and then people could bring gifts for the wedding. A lot of times, though, when courtiers wanted to give gifts to Elizabeth, they had to sort of make a public show of it. But they also had to be very careful not to look like they were making a public show of it. It's this sort of very fine balance. And then, of course, there was always a risk that the gift might not be well received. And so people would dress up in costumes, particularly costumes from fairyland, because it wouldn't offend anybody. If you dressed up as a fairy, you're not inadvertently offending somebody else. Because they're not yeah. real. Because they're not real. Exactly. I see. Okay. Exactly. So you're not, you're not mocking anyone when you dress no, up. Okay. You're not mocking anyone. You're just dressing up in this style, this aesthetic that Queen Elizabeth was known to like and bringing her presence. And that way, if the present didn't go over well, you had plausible deniability, right? Oh, that wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Eglantine fairy. <laughs> that's that's clever. That's a that's a clever way to to balance that for sure. Now, I want to ask about Twelfth Night the play because in it, there obviously the setting for Twelfth Night is Illyria, and it's it's this unusual place with characters who act in in weird ways. But I wonder, was it based on a real place, or was it trying to be this fairyland too? You know, this is such a good question, and it it for me this was such an exciting vein of research for me as I was working on this book. But Illyria is a real place. It was an area on the west coast of the Balkan Peninsula on the eastern edge of the Adriatic Sea. And it was originally inhabited by several tribes known as the Illyrians. The Romans conquered the region in about 168 BC. After that, Illyria went through a succession of assorted conquerors until the Venetians arrived in 1420 and managed to hold on to it until 1797. However, (laughs) but wait, there's more. However, the location of the play Twelfth Night is likely an ancient city that used to be called Ragosa or Ragusa. Again, I apologize to Venetian and Italian speakers and Croatian speakers. It is now called Dubrovnik and is located in Croatia. Now, Ragusa never fell to Venice, but it was sometimes called the Venice of the Adriatic, even though Venice was on the Adriatic, but never mind. And it's also been called the Pearl of the Adriatic. Like Venice, it was a major shipping port and a center of art and culture. And countries who didn't want to go through Venetian ports could bring their goods in through Ragusa. So the Venetians, they were their own civilization long before Italy became a country. Venice was there for a thousand years. And for several hundreds of those years, it was the wealthiest, most successful, one of the very biggest cities in Western Europe. And it created this cultural, almost a a fantasy place. 
where everybody's ideas about what Venice had been and what Venice was then and what it could be were all sort of mashed together, kind of like we do for New York City now, right? Sure. It it kind of has its own rep, bigger than life reputation. But I wanted to check with you about the date. Now, you said the Venetians had it from the 1420 until the mid 18th century. Does that mean that during Shakespeare's lifetime, the real Illyria was this thriving port city that you're talking about? Yes, it was. That's amazing. So the people in his audience would have had this the same kind of when you mentioned New York and it had this bigger than life mm-hmm. reputation, there would have been an immediate connection then for his audience about Illyria and what it was and where it was. Not only that, they could have easily been there. At that point, you know, Venice hit its peak probably around the 1300s and had been in sort of this gentle decline since then. Now, when you're the top power in the world, or in Western Europe, certainly, then you have a long way to fall. So even in Shakespeare's day, it was still the whole Veneto, which is the region that was being ruled by Venice. The whole Veneto was very prosperous, thriving, lots of art, tons of culture. It was still the Renaissance. You know, it, it wasn't by any means any kind of a of a backwater town. But they had lost their edge in terms of being the main shipping power because maritime trade had shifted off the Mediterranean and into the Atlantic. And their boats couldn't sail those kinds of seas. Their boats were perfectly suited to the Mediterranean. They had this amazing shipbuilding industry. It was called the Arsenal, and they were able to build ships incredibly fast, but they could not compete on the open sea. And so they were one of the first areas to really become a tourist industry. So that even in Shakespeare's day, People would go to Venice to see the art and see the sights, and they had definitely very specific ideas of Venetian stereotypes and so on, and all of these got plugged really easily into English plays with no problem translating what those characters were. As soon as you said... As soon as the play opens and you say, we're in Verona or we're in Illyria or we're in Padua, then people already have certain expectations in the same way that if we said, oh, you know, this story is taking place in Mexico or it's taking place in Paris, we'd have definite ideas about what kind of stereotypes we would expect to see in that situation for better or worse. It sounds like it makes so much more sense now for Shakespeare to have set this 12th night play in this particular location. I think for a lot of people new to the play, it feels like a fantasy place or somewhere that you wanted 
you know, magical things to be possible. But when you learn the history of the real Illyria, of course, magical things were thought to be possible there. So I I love knowing more about that. And Rachel, I know we would love to dive into the history of Twelfth Night and and Illyria (laughs) and all these things that you have have shared with us. We're, We're thrilled to explore this further. So in addition to your own book on Twelfth Night, what are some of your favorite resources you can recommend for our listeners that are new to this history? Where should they begin to learn more? I've included a journal article, and if people don't know, JSTOR, J-S-T-O-R, and of course, a lot of your listeners will know exactly what that is, but in case you don't, it's a place where a lot of articles are stored, journal articles. And it used to be that you had to pay a lot of money to get on there and do research. But now, anybody can get an account and read 99 free articles a month. And I really want to encourage people to take advantage of that. Obviously, a lot of this stuff, you can find great stuff on Wikipedia and everything else. But if you're a bit of a nerd, JSTOR is a treasure trove. And I have one here called The Evolution of the Early Tudor Disguising Pageant and Mask that goes into all kinds of fun stuff. And do you want me to read out the URL or shall we just? No, 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 don't read out the URL. We'll put it in the show notes. That'll be easier. People can just click it. Perfect. And the author of that is Sydney Anglo, A-N-G-L-O. Then there's a wonderful book called The Elizabethans at Home by Lou Emily Pearson by Stanford University Press. It was published in 1957. And I just want to encourage any fan of Shakespeare and that Shakespeare life to get a look at this book. It's an old book. It's fairly easy to find at a reasonable price. And it's just a treasure trove of how did the Elizabethans do things like prepare for feasts? How did they celebrate festivals? How did they make their shoes? What were their weddings like? I, it's It just goes on and on into incredible detail. And oh, it sounds perfect for our show. We've covered some of those things on our episodes before. And just listening to your list, I'm excited to dive in and find some new episode topics in, from that book, I'm sure. And then finally, I want to offer... I made this compendium of point of view walking tours of all the locations in Shakespeare's plays. And I created this group on Facebook and you don't have to join the group. It's public. It's not the kind of group where I expect people to participate or post anything. In fact, if other people try to post things, I don't approve them because all it is is a resource for people to look up a particular play. And then I've provided the play, a Wikipedia article synopsis about it, and links to different videos that will take you on walking tours of the locations in that particular play. So, for instance, in Twelfth Night, I provide a point of view walking tour for Dubrovnik, or what used to be Ragusa. And these are fascinating to me. You know, obviously, it's been 400 years, and a lot of landmarks have changed, but quite a few haven't. And if you're in the United States, you may not have gotten to tour all of Europe to see every single location where Shakespeare's plays were set. And so this kind of gives you a little way to walk around those things, see those hills, 
see the battlefield, see some of the castles. It's super fun. Such a nice way to make just a tangible connection with some of the impressions and and thoughts that Shakespeare's audience would have had when he was putting his plays together. That's an excellent resource. We will link to the articles, the books, and the videos that Rachel recommends today in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you hang on for the URL for where to go see those. Now, Rachel, as you know, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and you are allowed to choose a new Desert Island book since you've been with us here before, but I would <laughs> like to know what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island. My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I had to do some thinking about this, <laughs> but I think I would bring the Violet Fairy book. You know, those fairy tale books and they each have a, a different color. And I, I probably should have looked up the author, but there's a gray fairy book and a yellow fairy book and a blue fairy book. And just because violet is my favorite color, I think that's the one I would bring. Oh, that sounds beautiful. What an artistic choice. I like it. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, this 12th night book, obviously, I'm very excited about that. Well, we certainly hope to see your 12th night book come to fruition and we'll place links in the show notes today where you can find links to Rachel's book pages and learn more about what she has written. Rachel Onstead, thank you so much for being here with us this week and taking us through the history of 12th night and letting us learn more about Illyria. This has been a really fun conversation and I appreciate your time today. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Cassidy. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a rating and review on the podcast platform you're listening from today. For more in-depth history on Twelfth Night, including woodcuts, portraits, maps of Illyria, where you can see exactly where it was located during Shakespeare's lifetime, along with special links to the recipes for lamb's wool and more information on wassailing, tons of fun things to find packed into the show notes for today's episode. We include not only this bonus history, but also links to the books and resources Rachel recommends today, along with links to other of our podcast episodes that cover things like Twelfth Night and wassailing for you, so you can be prepared to celebrate all week long. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 246. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP246. That Shakespeare Life is made available each week all over the world, completely free to listen and without any sponsorship spots for you to listen to. This is made possible by listeners just like you who sign up to support our work by being a patron. Patrons get an inside look at the making of our show and the opportunity to see sneak peeks at upcoming guests and submit questions that they'd like to be asked during those conversations. And we ask them live on the air so you can even hear your name mentioned sometimes. Patrons get access to bonus content, including our exclusive documentary short films on the life of William Shakespeare, along with our award-winning animated shorts where you can explore Shakespeare's plays in just three minutes. There's lots of extra history episodes and insider bonuses for our patrons to say thank you for help keeping that Shakespeare life on the air and available all over the world completely free. If you would like to help support our show and continue the history that you learn here each week, then sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for spending the first Monday of the new year here with us. Here's wishing you a wonderful, happy new year filled to the brim with Shakespeare history. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.